1 John chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it. And bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we've seen and heard declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Father, we thank you tonight. What, what wonderful, encouraging words. The name for John that is the beloved disciple. And thank you, Lord, for all those years that he was saved. He was a man that had a consistent, very loving, a very graceful spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the Apostle John, all that he endured, being exiled on the island of Patmos in his later years, thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil, ridiculed, the last of the apostles, hearing and learning of his friends like Peter, who was crucified upside down, his brother James being killed by the sword. He endured so much heartache, yet he was a trusted disciple, so trusted the Lord Jesus Christ told him to take Mary under his wings to take care of her. I mean, just so many things we think about John that we overlook. And yet, Lord, I, I'm thankful as I read First John, he was, a, he was a fiery fundamentalist. He stood for the, for, he contended for the faith once delivered for, to the saints. He was a man that was solid on doctrine. The core doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. He took a, a stand at a time when a heresy known as Gnosticism had swept through the Roman Empire and affected many of the churches that had been established and actually had weakened many of those churches during that time. Some of them went into bad doctrine and you led John to write this powerful, powerful uh, epistle similar to what Paul wrote and several, several of his in dealing with the, the problem of Gnosticism. And though our time is not going to be spent these next few weeks looking at Gnosticism, as much as it is at just the reality of the deity of Jesus Christ and His power and the promises we have in 1 John, Father, do a, a maturing work, a growing work, a purging work, a, a cleansing work. Do a mighty work in our hearts. And I pray that, Lord, that as we week by week read through this chapter, each chapter and section, that we'll grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, I ask for what the psalmist prayed for in Psalms 92.10. He said, My horn shall be anointed like the horn of a unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. God, I pray for power and help. Though this is an evening service, Lord, I need to be, I need to be in the Spirit on this Lord's day and night that, God, someone watching who's not saved would hear the gospel Lord, they'd get saved and 
your people be revived and restored and encouraged today. Bless your word, we pray now, and we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated where you're at. As I said this morning, we just completed a series on the book of Revelation, and for me, I just having spent just a lot of time through that, and probably not as much as I wish I could have, I, I feel kind of remiss that we're not still in Revelation. I almost wanted to re-preach it again because there's just so many things I felt like I missed, but we need to move on. And, and as I was praying over what to do, I kind of asked over several different books, and the books I did decide on or the Lord didn't leave me to preach on, I'll probably reserve for next year for, next year, for several series we'll do next year, and, and uh, that I think will be very exciting, very helpful for our Christian lives, but... I think as we, we look at this, we, we're reminded as we went through Revelation that uh, God used John to really help us to strengthen us in the doctrine of eschatology about things to come and how to be a steadfast Christian in the midst of this. And as I was praying over what God wanted me to do, I was led back, kept coming back to First John. And, and First John would just seems very reasonable because he does, he does deal with some things of eschatology in First John. And he does deal with some, some very, very pertinent things to deal with doctrine to help us there and, and kind of covers every aspect of the Christian life there. And so we'll be looking at First John for a few weeks here. I don't know how long, maybe five weeks, maybe ten weeks, I'm not sure, but we're going to kind of go through First John a little bit as the Lord leads us to preach through that there. And uh, I'm thankful for First John. I've had the privilege of preaching through the Gospel of John and through Revelation. I've had the privilege of preaching through in the early years when I was past, the early years of pastoring here at the church, First, Second, and Third John, and we're preaching through it again because I think there's some, just some things that need to be revitalized and taught there. Now, as we go through First John, I think we have to be reminded that, that, that First John, Second John, and Third John are three very small epistles. When I first got saved, it used to be recommended to people that if you're, you're a newborn believer, that uh, you should probably read through the Gospel of John. And I would agree with that. But for someone who's not disciplined in reading through the Scriptures and trying to understand it, I, I encourage them to read through the Gospel of John, but I also encourage people to read, maybe begin by reading through First John and read it through about three or four times. And first of all, it's easy to understand. Secondly, it deals with just uh, issues of security that people have because one of the biggest challenges that a new believer has is eternal security. How do I know for sure that I'm saved? And if you'll turn over to First John chapter 5, Go with me to First John chapter 5. We'll spend some time on this in, in, in a couple of weeks. But First John chapter 5, verses 11 to 13 are very precious verses. These are verses we must commit to memory. Uh, these are verses that we should be able to articulate and explain, to, to give a testimonial as to how we know for sure we're saved. And you'll notice chapter 5, verse 11, he says, And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. We have to remind ourselves that eternal life, God has given us a written record for eternal life, and that's found in God's Word, the Bible. The Bible itself testifies to the fact that you're saved. Hey, if you're saved this evening, I'll tell you this, once you're saved, you're always saved. Amen? You're not going to lose your salvation. You have it uh, just embedded in Jesus Christ. It's in Him. And the Bible says here in verse 12, He that has the Son is life, and he that has not the Son of God is not life. When you by faith take Jesus Christ as Savior, you have that life abiding in you. And He said in verse 13, these things, what things? What He wrote here in First John, for all of First John, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Notice this, that ye may know. Now the word know means that you know with confidence you know with absolute certainty that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. I'm so thankful that the Bible doesn't leave us hanging out there. I'm so thankful this evening that the Bible doesn't leave us wondering about our eternal security. Now, we take it for granted because we're independent Baptists and we know what the Bible teaches and we take a literal approach to the Word of God and we believe that all of the Bible is the Word of God. But I want to tell you there are segments of Christianity where they're not so firm and because of maybe heretical teaching that was passed down 
by the forefathers of a denomination or group down there, they have this insecurity about that. I mean, you deal with some people that deal with the assembly, that are in the Assemblies of God movement or charismatic. They have, they have, they struggle with eternal security. You deal with some that are in other types of denominations, some Protestant denominations. They struggle with the area of eternal security. I've talked to many who are Presbyterian, Methodist by, by background, and they struggle with eternal security. They don't really know for sure they're saved. But I want to tell you tonight, as we study the Bible, thank God as, as Baptists, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and it's because the Bible is the Word of God, we believe that we have eternal security. And we, call, we point to this verse right here, 1 John 5, 13, that this was written, that you may know that you have eternal life there. Now that word know is a very important word because it's used 40 times in this little book of 1 John. It's a word that John wanted to use to help believers who were being moved or unsettled about their faith. That you can know. That you need to know. And so as we work through 1 John, we're going to notice there are several words that are used recurrently that were, were issues and, and uh, challenges that John had to work through. The word know, 40 times. The word love, 46 times. And next to the Apostle Paul, probably there was no other man that... God could use more thoroughly and powerfully to deal with love among the brethren and love for souls and the Apostle John because he was the beloved disciple. The word abide is used 15 times in this book. That's interesting because John was the one who wrote uh, the Gospel of John and he, and he uses that, that word is used recurrently over in John chapter 15 about abiding and remaining, continuing Jesus Christ there. You'll notice that there are four times that John, John makes a statement. Look at verse 4. Four times, and this kind of helps you as you study through First John. This helps you to know the break points in terms of understanding why, where are these break points at in the Scriptures. And he says in, in John 1, 4, that he says, These things write we unto you. He tells the purpose for the writing. He wants to make sure his audience knows that he's writing to you. These things we're writing. By the way, this letter was directed to the church at Ephesus that Paul had founded. That Timothy had passed him one time. And then at, after Timothy, John came and John passed him for a period of time. As he's writing to his church at Ephesus, he's writing also to churches throughout Asia Minor who are suffering from the same thing. That's why God used John to address those seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor there throughout that area of what we call modern-day Turkey that we read about in Revelations 2 and 3. And so chapter 1, verse 4, he says, These things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. These things write we unto you, that ye sin not. Notice chapter 2, verse 26. Now he deals with the area of false teachers and spiritual seduction. These things write we unto you, concerning them that seduce you. And then we just saw 1 John five thirteen. These things write we unto you, that ye may know. You look for these break points. Sometimes you read through James and you read through, as we've been going through 1 Corinthians on Wednesday night, Paul, Paul uses the phrase, now brethren, and he used that word brethren, it's a break point. He wants to understand there's, this is either a continuation or, or, or something new, but it's a, it's a very centralized thought he wants us to capture there. The priority is knowing. We need to know who Jesus is. We must know in whom we believe it. We must know that we have eternal life. We must know, the Bible says here. He says, he says here that you may know. And so tonight we're, we're going to look at these opening verses. And John is saying this, I want you to know. Yes, I know, and I want you to know. Yes, I know, 
And I want you to know. Notice four things that we find in these four verses. Number one, Paul, John, as he writes, it says, Yes, I know the living God. Yes, I know the living God. Notice verse one. He says, That which was from the beginning. Now, the word beginning is not taking us all the way back to Genesis. Be careful as you study through the New Testament, where sometimes Paul or John or even Peter uses the word beginning. You have to look contextually. What beginning is he talking about? And the beginning there is at the time when Jesus began his ministry on earth. It's not take us back to creation. It's talking about the exact time when Jesus began his ministry. Or as Paul uses it over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he talks about this word a beginning in, in chapter 2 verse 13. And there he's talking about the beginning of the gospel there at the church at Thessalonica. You've got to be very careful at what the point of time is. He says, that which was from the beginning, notice this, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Now something's very clear to us tonight if we know the Bible. The word of life is speaking about Jesus Christ. John is writing, you want to remember this, John is writing to a saved audience. John is writing to Christian people. That's important because, I'll get into this a little bit more next week, Lord willing. But there's a heresy that began up in the state of Washington with the New Evangelical Church pastor and his wife that teaches that because when we confess our sins and called on Jesus to be our Savior, there's no need anymore to confess your sins. And unfortunately, there are young independent Baptist pastors who have read this literature, who is, and this man is a non-Baptist, they've read this literature and are telling their congregations and telling others, because I've done that, there's no need for me to confess my sins. Now, I understand. We know that our sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ. We know what 1 John 1, 7 says. We know that 1 John 1, 7 says that his, that his blood, that our sins are covered by the blood of Christ. We understand that. But, the, but to say that there's no need to confess our sins contradicts the Word of God. Because notice 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we, who's we? Believers. If we confess our sins, it's talking about we need to confess our sins. We go down to chapter 2, verse 1. It makes very clear sense there that there will be sin in our lives. And he tells us that as a believer, we must, we must abstain from living in a sinful life. And he talks about that later on in chapter 5. We must understand something tonight. That we must read the Word of God and with clarity understand who is he talking about there. And so notice this here. He says, that which we've seen, that's which we have heard. He's, he's talking about the Word of life. He's talking about Jesus Christ there. He says, which we've looked upon, our hands have handled. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about his, his personal experience and experience of the apostles and those who were with him those days, but predominantly the apostles. He's talking about, I want to, I want to share with you tonight that I know Jesus Christ who is the living God. And that's one of the reasons why he wrote 1 John, because there was a sect of teaching, uh, these group, these groups of people called the Gnostics. And they believe that all flesh is sin. And so they believe because all flesh was sin, there is no way that Jesus Christ could come in the flesh. Because if he came in the flesh, that meant that Jesus Christ had sinned. So they could not accept him. They were telling people that he was not a sinless Savior. But I want to tell you tonight, he was a sinless Savior. He was in all points tempted like as you and I are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ knew, had no sin. I mean, that's what makes the virgin birth such a powerful doctrine. 
Not one drop of, Adam, of, of Joseph's blood was, was, can be found in, in Jesus' bloodstream. He had holy blood. He had divine blood. He had sinless blood. That's the only kind of blood that can wash away your sins, by the way. Amen? And so John is writing from first-hand experience that you may know. But he says, before you know, I want to tell you what I know. I've seen him with my eyes. I've heard him with my ears. I, my hands have touched him. I, I, I served with him. We've handled him. We, I, I put my, my finger into the prince where the nails were. He says, I want you to know in verse 1, he says, we have heard with our ears. We have seen with our eyes. We've looked upon. We've seen the miracles. We've seen all those things that he's done. He says, yes, I know. Why don't you consider me just John's life for just a minute and how he knew the living God. Those days began when he and his brother James were working with their father Zebedee on the family ship, the family fishing business. They'd spent a night fishing and James and John were with their father. They're mending the nets, they're washing the nets and fixing the nets. They're getting them all cleaned and unraveled and getting them ready for the, for the, for the following evenings, uh, that evening's fishing expedition. Jesus is walking the shoreline of Galilee where these men are at and he looks at them in the eye and he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And there was something captivating as their eyes met each other, as John's eyes met with Jesus' eyes. He wasn't thinking about his brother James that moment. He wasn't thinking about his father Zebedee. He wasn't thinking about his mother Salome. He looked at Jesus Christ and there was a flame in his eyes and a fire in his voice and he says he says follow me and i'll make you fishers of men and john is thinking man i've heard with my own ears there's something about this man that's different i mean he's talking to me about fishing for men and i don't know what this fishing for men business is all about but there's something about it that sounds a lot better than fishing for fish amen and so he says he heard with his ears and he'd seen with his eyes we go through the Gospel of John in chapter 2, the very first miracle, James and John and some of the other men, before they were actually called apostles, they followed Jesus to a, to a marriage that's there at Cana of Galilee. And there at Cana of Galilee, they're watching Jesus interact with the servants as Mary came and told Jesus that they have no more wine. And so she, she turns to the servants and she said, whatever he tells you, just go ahead and do that. And they watch as Jesus told the servants what to do. And as the governor of the feast got the sample, that, that water that was turned to wine, he tasted and he said, man, I've never had anything so refreshing, so good. Like, like this, he says, he says, normally men keep their best wine for last, but he says, he says, you've kept your, he says, their worst wine for last. He says, you have reserved your best for last. And he, he tastes this is wonderful. And as they were there, they said, well, that was water that they poured, poured into those jugs. There was water they went into those, that went into those, those containers. And Jesus transformed that. He said with there, if you think about what he's saying in verse 1, he's saying, we heard and we have seen with our eyes. John was there as the nobleman came down from Capernaum and he went and walked 15 miles all the way down from where he was at from Capernaum to be where Jesus was at a cane of Galilee. And that man came and he said, sir, come down here. My son died. He was a desperate man. He came and walked 15 miles so Jesus could address the problem with his son. And John is kind of wondering there. He says, I wonder what he's going to do there for this. I wonder what Jesus is going to do. And he listened as Jesus interacted with this man. He interacted with him and he told him, he said, according to your face, so be it. And that man turned around and that moment he turned around, that man's son was healed. And the word came back to the apostles and to James and John and the others that this man was healed. And John could testify here in verse one. I have heard with my ears and I've seen with my eyes later on. They would, go up to, they would go up to Samaria. And there in Samaria, 
Jesus interacted with this woman and James and John and the rest of them, they went away to get some food. And while James was interacting, they come back and this woman is saved and she, they get there right as she puts down her water pot and she runs back into town and she tells these men, come see a man who's told me all the things that ever I did. And they're kind of wondering what happened all over this. They said, Master, we brought some food. You better eat. He says, I, he says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And as they're watching, these men are coming and men from Samaria getting saved. And they watch for two or three more days as Jesus stays there and his ministry. They're watching and they're beholding the conversion of Samaritans. They're watching these men as men that, that, that were taught we're not to have anything to do with Samaritans. They're seeing Jesus break the ethnic and racial barriers and going to these men and reaching them with the gospel. And he's saying here, we have handled with our hands, we've seen with our eyes, we've heard with our ears what the Savior is doing. He was at the pool of Bethesda when a man who had been lame for 38 years of his life had been laying there. He heard the story about that man laying there and, and uh, people walking over that man to get into this water that supposedly an angel came to stir up the water and the first one who walked in that water would get healed. And Jesus came and touched that man. He took him by the hand and healed that man. He watched that man that was lame. who had a reputation being laid there at the pool of Bethesda. They watched that man get up and he walked and give testimony of what Jesus Christ did for him. He watched a lame man get healed. Hey, later on, years later, just a few, couple years later, he watched, he was at the tomb with Jesus when his, their good friend Lazarus had been laid in the tomb, been laying there for four years. And Jay, John, uh, Jesus said, roll the stone away. And you have to kind of think, maybe John was one of those men that rolled the stone away. And he came and, he, uh, and Jesus uttered the words, Lazarus, come forth. And they watched him come forth. He was in his bandages and all of those types of things. And they unwound him. And they watched Jesus as he brought this man back to life. And Jesus declared that I am the resurrection life. Hey, as you look at John's life, he could testify according to verse 1. I want to tell you what, what I know. I want to tell you what I've heard and what I've seen and what we've looked upon. But then the day came when he was there at the betrayal of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of all the apostles, the only one, as we read the narratives there, the only one that was there when he died. And as he suffered with John. I don't know about you, but I always imagine in my thoughts, if I'd been under the tutelage of the Lord Jesus Christ for all that time, at the moment, at that time, he's crucified. And all my friends are gone. I feel bad that Jesus was abandoned. But I also would feel very lonely and very ashamed that I didn't do more for the Lord Jesus Christ. And John was there. He saw with his eyes the crown of thorns. He heard with his ears the jeering crowd, crucify him. He saw with his own eyes the blood that came out of his hands and the blood that poured out of his feet. He heard those last words, it is finished, to tell us that. I mean, John, nobody, nobody perhaps could write better and say more about the experience that we have heard and we have seen with our eyes and our hands have handled the word of life. That morning of the resurrection. Remember the story there in John chapter 20? Much different than Matthew 28, Mark 16, and Luke chapter 20, 24. John ran ahead of Peter. Remember that? And John ran ahead of Peter and he stuck his head inside the tomb. Then he came right back out. 
And you have to imagine, I mean, they're filled with grief and it really hasn't, really hasn't got their mind and attention that Christ has been risen from the dead. Just the rolling away the two, the, of the stone should have got them. It just kind of impressed on that. And Peter was the one that actually went inside. And the Bible describes that Peter was the one that saw the, that saw the, 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 the bandages laid, laid there on the, on the slab. And then the napkin that was around his face was neatly folded there. But that night, that night, Jesus came in that room where the apostles wore he said, peace be unto you. Remember that? And Jesus had that first evening service with them. And their hands handled the word of life. But I mean, for the very first time, it's coming to realization. This is the Son of God. Now, John was the one who wrote John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glories of the only begotten the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, he wrote that years after he experienced all that. But it became reality to him at that night of the resurrection. As it did so, he said, man, I'm, I'm looking here. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. And he's writing here that Jesus Christ is the one that the Old Testament prophesied. He's the one that the Word speaks about. But now He's manifest Himself. He's not just the written Word. He is the living Word. He's walking among us. He's the living, walking Logos that's walking among us. We've experienced with our hands. We've experienced with our eyes. We've experienced with our ears. He says, yes, I know. I know the living God. Let me say to you today, yes, you should know the living God too. You should know the living God through your daily devotions. You should know the living Christ by reading the Word of God and just imagine yourself being there as He healed the blind, as He touched the ears of those who were deaf, as He raised the dead back to life. We want to be there at that moment when He was crucified and watching as He went through the horrible agonies of suffering and watching Jesus die there on the cross. Yes, we can say like John, yes, we know, yes, we know. He said, yes, I know, and I want you to know. He says, yes, I know Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. Yes, I know Jesus. I heard him pray for us and he's praying for us now. Yes, I know Jesus was beaten and crucified for my sins. Yes, I know Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. Yes, I know he's the one that ascended to heaven and he'll come back again. Yes, I know the living God and I want you to know. Number two, would you notice this in verse two? He testified of knowing the living God. He testified in verse 2 of a lively gospel. Look at verse 2, please. For the life was manifested. And we have seen it. Notice these words. And bear witness. And show unto you. That eternal life. Now the Gnostics, John talks about this in 1 John 2.26. They came into the Ephesian assembly. They came in pretentiously. And with the idea or pretense, they believed the same doctrine. But they did not. And he says in 1 John 2.26, These things write we unto you, listen, concerning them which seduce you. Now I want you to know something today. Spiritual seducers do not win their converts by the way we win souls. They win their converts by going after weak Christians. 
immature Christians, ungrounded Christians. That's why it's, it's critical that, that someone that gets saved, they get, they get grounded in the Word of God and know what they believe as soon as possible. I mean, you're an immature Christian. And let me just put it this way. You're an ungrounded Christian. You're easy pickings. He'll pluck you out. And these, whatever happened there, and I don't blame the pastors per se because the whole, the whole, the whole matter of the, of the local church and, and shepherding and all these things was unfolding at that time in the first century. And even though Paul prophetically told the churches, he, he told them, remember he told the elders at Ephesus, they met with him in Miletus there in Acts chapter 20, he says, after my departure, shall, he says, after my departure, shall, shall men arise, he says, and, they, they, he, and he describes them as wolves, and they'll enter into the flock, and I'll tell you, there are wolves that are outside that want to enter into every flock. They want to come in with their heretical teaching, some newfangled teaching there about radical grace or something of that nature there. And they want to come in and permeate it. And they want to, they'll start. And what they do is they look like they're part of the congregation. They look like everybody else. But they sit there and they pick, make, make a friendship, make an acquaintance with somebody next to them. And it may be a sweet lady next right here. And it may be a, 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 a gentleman next door right next to them. And they'll start talking with them. And they'll invite them over for lunch and do some things. And they'll do some things that nobody that's in a leadership position in the church knows about. And next thing you know, they've been messing with these people's mind, and they'll, they'll take the messages they've been preaching. He says, you know, that was a great message that was preached, but let me tell you something I found from my study of the Word of God. Now, when somebody tells you something like that, that's a red flag right there, amen? When they say, let me tell you what I found in my study of the Word of God, and they'll say, but, the preacher said this, but, and over a period of time, these Gnostics came in, and it convinced the believers there at the church at Ephesus throughout Asia Minor. They said, you know, we, you know, maybe the deity, what's been advocated by Christianity about the deity of Jesus Christ, there's something suspect about the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, John's going to get into this, and he'll tell them. Now, here's how you tell that they're wrong. Look over at 1 John chapter 4 for a minute. Now, we're going to reassemble as a church. Amen. We're going to have packed services, and we're going to have multiple services. We'll slowly get all the ministries back around as time goes on. But I'm going to tell you, there are going to be some that are going to try to find their way, according to 1 John 2.26. They're called the spirit of the Antichrist. They're going to come in to try to seduce you in changing your belief system. And what they're going to attack it's the person of Jesus Christ. Now notice chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Beloved. Now you can feel the heart of, of John right there. I mean, he's just loving on these people. Beloved, he says, Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone to well. Now here's something. If, you, you've been, if you've been saved in an independent Baptist church, and you've been raised in a church like this, you know, you know kind of the spiel on this. We, we try to help you through understanding how do you detect spiritual seduction and how do you tell if there's something wrong going on? How do you tell that there's a, well, how do you get the red flags to come up? But if you come from a, a different kind of a background, let's say like a, mainly a Protestant type of background, where they probably were not as, probably as, um, I would, how would I say, how, as militantly, militantly defensive as I would be concerning the guarding the faith. They're going to come in with this, everybody loves everybody, we're all the same, 
We're universal church. We're not universal church, but they'll say we're universal church. We're all the same and all the same things. And, you know, maybe you need to listen to this guy here because, because he's got a new twist on things. Let me tell you, you're not supposed to add anything to the Word of God or take anything from the Word of God. If you've got a new twist, you're adding something to the Word of God. Amen? And he says here, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether of God. Now, you should know enough to realize, hey, there's something going on. There may be a red flag, but we better check this out. He says, because notice this, notice, and this was in the first century. Now, you imagine today, many false prophets are gone on into the world. He says, hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now, there's the first test. Are they confessing Christ came in the flesh? He, is, he was God and he was man 100% with no sin in his life. We don't de-emphasize his humanity. We don't de-emphasize his deity. They are one and the same. He was the sinless son of God. He was co-equal with God. In fact, he is co-equal with God. He's co-essential with God. He's co-eternal with God. Every attribute of God is found in Jesus Christ. He says, verse 3, And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. Where have you have heard that it should come? And even now already is it in the world. So now we go back to chapter 1 verse 2. And John is talking about his witness. He says, I'm bearing witness to a body of believers who have been affected, whose spirits have been devastated, and whatever their... Their thought process about Jesus Christ, they are doubting and suspecting as to whether or not, is he really the Son of God? Did Jesus Christ just come in spirit and not in the flesh? That's what they were saying. And there are some who still teach today that the resurrected Jesus Christ was in spirit, not in body. I'm going to tell you something today. His resurrection was by body. It was a bodily resurrection. Without that, your Christianity does nothing to stand upon. It was a bodily resurrection. And so he says, for the life was manifest, and we have seen and bear witness and shown you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifest unto us. He's talking about a lively gospel. I want to tell you tonight, the gospel is alive. The gospel is not dead. The gospel and its message is the power of God into salvation. The gospel and its message is a glorious gospel. In Revelation 14, 6, we saw this. It is an everlasting gospel. It is unchanging. Listen, the gospel that Paul preached, the gospel that John preached, the gospel that Peter preached, the gospel that Charles Spurgeon preached, the gospel that Dwight L. Moody preached, the gospel that John R. Rice preached. Listen, we are the 21st century, but I want to tell you today, when you trace it back to the apostles, that's the same gospel that we still preach today. It's an unchanging gospel. It's an uncorrupted gospel. It's a lively gospel. It's a gospel that saves sinners. He says, we bear witness and show unto you that eternal life. Right there in verse 2. He's realizing and he's telling, not really, but he's telling these believers, listen, I know that some of you feel very shaky about your eternal security. Moms and dads, I want to encourage you to drill deep with your children about their eternal security. And I'll tell you why. They may have believed because you told them so. And they heard the preachers preach about it. 
But deep down in their heart, they're struggling. They may be struggling. Whether or not I'm safe or not. We've got several good people in our church. Grew up in Christian families. Who struggle with it. But when they got the victory, there was peace in their, peace in their heart. And the smile of Jesus Christ on their face. I'm just saying today, don't take for granted. Make sure the most important, listen, God told Noah, come thou in all thy house and to all thy family to the ark. You better make sure every one of your children knows for sure they're saved. Go through the eternal security. Make sure they're saved. Don't rush them through the process. Make sure they know they're saved. And so John, if you read through the gospel of John, uh, you, you find that he uses the word eternal or everlasting life 21 times. As you read through 1 John and the Gospel of John, I want to tell you the message of the Gospel is here. You can lead a person to Christ out of 1 John. You can lead a person to Christ out of the Gospel of John. You can explain the entire Gospel narrative. Listen to 1 John. We find that man's sin is, mag- is talked about here. We, talk, we see sin and the condemnation of sin. And we see the love of God in 1 John chapter 4. And we see confessing Christ as Savior in 1 John chapter 4. And we see in John chapter 5 that we, 1 John chapter 5, we, can, we see how we can have eternal security through knowing Jesus Christ as Savior. I mean, you can take the little book of 1 John and lead a sinner to Christ. Right out of 1 John there, not just out of Romans. There's a message of the gospel. But notice there's the mandate of the gospel. Now John said, the life was manifested. Christ came. I saw it. I personally experienced who he is. And I bear witness to you. Now he's trying to help these people to come back full circle and understanding that if you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, you repented of your sins and put your faith in him, you're saved. Don't let somebody mess with your salvation. Don't let somebody tell you you need to get a baptism of spirit. You got the baptism of spirit when you got saved. Amen? But in this word witness, we have a mandate, brother and sister in Christ. Now I know COVID-19 has somewhat paralyzed us. And kind of just threw a curveball at our regular processes. But as soon as the processes, I started realizing what we're used to got all upset. I began praying, Lord, you better show me what we, I need to do, at least on my part, and see and what, what to do about this matter, because I'm not going to sit around here and wait till some county official, some unelected official, some person who was taking power that they were never supposed to have, and tell me I'm not supposed to be in church. God help us. I mean, thank God I had my good friend, Pastor Mike Creed, and a number of other men. They had a petition signed over a million independent Baptists, over a million Christians, and independent Baptists signed this petition that went to President Trump back in May and said, President Trump, we need you to go out there and declare the church is essential. And I want to tell you something. It shouldn't take a petition to get to our president to tell us, to tell this nation that church is essential. You just read the Bible, the Word of God, which is all the authority that we need, and church is essential. And I want to tell you something tonight. As we read the Word of God, listen, even though we've been under COVID-19, and we have to wear face coverings, and we're, we're worried about touching pieces of paper and cross-contamination, all that kind of stuff, it doesn't change the fact there's the mandate of the gospel. The Bible says in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, God be my witness, God knows, and the staff and deacons will testify, because I keep accountable to them. I'm going to tell you this, I have not allowed in my own personal life, and I'm saying this boastingly, I have not allowed in my personal life to let any of this stuff hinder or impair me from getting the gospel. And God, I'm going to tell you one of these days, just the unusual ways God has helped us to win people to Christ and get the gospel out and save people saved. Because you know what? I've just determined my heart that without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is and rewarded them that diligently seek them. And I'm going to tell you what today, God has not changed His word. God still wants all 
all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And I want to tell you today, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And maybe we feel paralyzed, but we still need to preach the gospel. Marvick Enriquez, who's watching by live stream right now, got a burden on her heart for all her relatives and, and friends in Davao, in the Philippines. There are at least eight to ten of them have watched these services by live stream and are watching right now and have trusted Jesus Christ their Savior. And they wrote and told us about it. I had friends here this morning. I'm going to call them later. My wife and I are going to call them later to pray with them. A lady last November that got diagnosed with cancer, the sister of one of our good members, that I led this member and her husband to Christ, and her mother to Christ. This lady was here this morning, and we, we never had met, and we, when she comes from a very, very strong Catholic background in the past, but because of her cancer situation, she just needed help, and nobody was reaching out to her, and her sister told me about her, and I said, hey, this, can I call her and talk to her? She said, sure, Pastor. Long story short, she got saved. Listen, uh, I got was able to give her the gospel. She got saved on the phone. We prayed her through this trial, and she's made it through this. I mean, she had some challenge, but she's got through that. In the midst of all this, she has a daughter that, after her grandmother passed away, her mother, her grandmother contracted COVID nineteen. Her grandmother was here the first Sunday of March. I actually saw them by the back row, and I saw them there, and I gave Grandma a hug because I had the privilege with Josh, Brother Josh Pingoy of leading the Night of Christ. We led the Night of Christ, and and we and I was so glad to see her. She's just a joy, and I was thankful. Three or four years ago, I got a chance to baptize her as well, and their family was there for that, and, I, and she said, I'm going, she's a pastor, I'm going up to Washington, I gave her a hug, I said, be very safe. Nanai got a phone call from Rose, she said, Pastor, Nanai's in the hospital, and I see she got COVID, and I said, oh my, one of the first early cases. Lady in her 80s, strong lady, matriarch of the family. Miss of all this, the lady that was here this morning, her daughter, who also lives up in Washington, was experiencing just some very strong anxiety attacks that many people have had during COVID. They're very real. They're not to be made fun of or joked about. And Rose and her husband said, Arnold, they said, Pastor, would you, would you call my niece up? And I said, Sure. They told me about her situation. I said, I better pray over this one because, man, I, I'm dealing with so many people lately. I've got anxiety problems. It's just, it's a, spirit, it's a spiritual stronghold. It's a demonic stronghold. I've got one right now that's a very strong one that's very, very troubling. I called her up. She told us what she was going through. And that's COVID had just started. And I'm trying, like everybody else, I'm trying to swim my way around and figure out what do we do through all this. Long story short, that young mother heard the gospel, got saved that night, got to start reading the Bible. You know, my wife will testify this and her aunt will testify this. From, and her mother, from that day, now it's, it's now six months later, seven months later, to the day she still writes us and says, Pastor, I want you to know, I don't have any trouble sleeping anymore. I want you to know I've never been more happier in my life than since Jesus Christ came to my heart. Can I tell you something even greater? I was telling the staff this the other day. I said, you know, in the past, pre-COVID, someone would get saved from a different area. And uh, we, we try to refer them to a church. But, you know, if you're not the one taking them, it's really hard. I mean, just you don't have any connection there. I mean, just I'm not making excuse for them. It's just what it is. It's just how we are socially. 
So I've been a, I've been a real um, adherent to having people follow us through live stream. Let me preach to you. Now, not universal church, but I'm praying about what to do. And this young lady that got saved, this young mother got saved, I've been burning for her to get discipleship. Do you know right now, she is going through discipleship, through Zoom, with one of our ladies here in the church, and growing in the Lord. It's got a report, third, third week report. Man, she's really growing. She's really just, and, she's, and she told me yesterday, she sent me a message. Pastor, I'm so thankful you introduced me to the sister in Christ to help me. She says, answer my question. She says, I am discovering how wonderful the Word of God is. Now, I love to hear that. Amen. I'm discovering how wonderful. And I can tell you stories like that. Why? Because it's a mandate of the gospel. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Listen, I was challenged in the early days of my ministry. I was asking a missionary friend of ours who was coming through here at that time when we supported him. And I said, hey, tell me about this pastor here. What, what can you describe about him? I said, he seems to be such a good guy in everything I know about. He said, Pastor Fall, if there's one thing I can tell you about this pastor, it's this. He's all about the gospel. I never forgot that. I thought, man, if that man's all about the gospel, I don't know what I'm all about, but I better be all about the gospel as well, amen? Woe is me if I preach out the gospel. Hey, Paul said this, if my gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Now let me make a statement. We are an evangelistic church and we are an evangelistic people. The breeding of this church is one where there is an interest and a fervency and desire of winning souls to Jesus Christ. Now, first thing you get indoctrinated with is understanding there is a world out there that's like an ocean of people dying in that raging sea, and we're to go out there in a lifeboat, and we're trying to win as many people as we can to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're praying over a ministry right now. We have somebody approach us. Did you know there are language ministries, if I can use the term ministry generically, that through COVID-19 to expose the cracks and weaknesses in their ministries, they're literally dying right now. One of the men and I got on a Zoom call on Friday, and we talked with a man who's been in our church, and a good man. I hope one day they'll come back through here. They have a language ministry right now that is just dying, but they've not accepted that fact. And I, talk, I started explaining about the local New Testament church, and they said, can you help us? I said, sure, I can help you. I said, I can start a ministry like that under this church. I'm not going over there to help sustain something that I can't help. I said, if you want me to help you, you've got to come under, come under the umbrella of this church here. I'll help you through that premise. I'll help you under our doctrine. I'll help you under our statement of faith. I'll help you under the preaching, uh, the, the preaching that I give through the Word of God, and not through somebody else who will come behind me and contradict and upset everything else that's been preached. Amen? The preaching of the gospel must mean everything we do. Listen, we have a club ministry. The gospel is, the gospel is preached. We have Sunday school. The gospel is preached. We have singing. Listen, even our singing in our independent Baptist church, it's evangelistic music. Moody said this, I will look upon this world as a wrecked vessel. God has given me a lifeboat and said, Moody, save all that you can. I'm just saying this morning, even I could go on and on and on. We have the message of the gospel. We have the mandate of the gospel. Listen, the best part of all this is the merchandise of the gospel. Amen. 
The merchandise of the gospel are souls that are saved and the sinners saved from the flames of hell and, a, and a, a person who's saved out of a terrible life who has a new life in Jesus Christ. Listen, the merchandise of this is reaping joy and bringing back our seeds with us is so saved from, and fruit that remains. I'm saying, what a wonderful thing it is when people get saved and we know that their name is on the book of life. Listen, tonight everybody can be a soul winner. Everybody can do their part. Everybody can make an assist. The merchandise is Andrew bringing his brother Peter to the Lord. The merchandise is a Nicodemus saved out of the blindness of, of organized religion, being born again into God's family. The merchandise is Philip preaching Christ in Samaria and many Samaritans getting saved. And then from there, God leading him to the desert of Gaza. God leading him out many, many miles out there just for one man. Listen, I am willing to go many, many miles just for one man. fervent witness and faithful soul winner says, yes, I know, and I want you to know him too. Amen? John said, yes, I know, and I bear witness to you. Yes, I know the living God, and yes, I know the lively gospel, and I want you to know the lively gospel, and I want the lively gospel to so permeate your thought and your mind that you think and breathe and think about people getting saved. Remember the story about Desmond Ross? He was in the Battle of Okinawa when Desmond Ross was recruiting in World War, World War II to they're going to, to be, be, be part of the military at that time. He said, well, I want to tell you something. I don't believe in bearing arms. They said, what? I, I don't believe in carrying a gun. They said, sir, you're not going to make it. He says, well, there has to be something I can do to help serve my country. He just says, I won't hold a rifle and I'm not going to shoot. Now, he's, and they were trying to figure this. What's wrong with this guy? And they decided, well, he has a willingness to serve our country. Let's train to be a medic. They trained to be a medic. Desmond Ross was there at the Battle of Okinawa. He was on that infamous place known as Hacksaw Ridge. Desmond Ross rescued 75 wounded Americans in a 12-hour period, listen to this, with a makeshift gurney that he made and bandages and ropes that he had in his backpack and then taking these men at the risk and peril of his own life and having them descend down this ridge, he got shot at many times. In fact, he lost the use of his left arm, if my memory serves right, because he got shot up so many times. He helped them descend down that ridge, and he got them down. And listen, over a 12-hour period of time, which had to be incredibly exhausting, incredibly dangerous, bullets whizzing by, watching fellow American after fellow American being felled by bullets and injured very terribly, he got them down there, and he helped rescue 75 wounded Americans. They interviewed Desmond Ross years later. They said, what motivated you at the risk of your own life to keep doing that? This is what he said. He said, I prayed a prayer. And they said, what did you pray? He said, Lord... Just help me get one more. Lord, help me just get one more. You know what? That's what, our, that's what it's about. The merchandise of the gospel is for you and I to pray. Lord, help me just get one more. We just finished preaching through Revelation 22, and I made the statement. We know there's the last invitation, but I wonder who's going to be the last individual that's going to trust Christ before everyone's taken, all of us are taken out. Who's going to be the last person that's going to get saved before the everlasting gospel stops? I'm telling you right now, we've got to do everything we can in praying our prayer. Lord, just help me get one more soul. Thirdly, which you notice verse 3. John said, yes, I know the living God. John said, yes, I know the live, lively gospel. But notice in verse 3, John is saying here, yes, I know what a loving gathering is all about. Now, when you have false doctrine, 
in a church, it's divisive. It splits families. It puts a rift between friendships. But not just false doctrine. When walls go up, and a misunderstanding or lack of understanding of what true Christian fellowship is all about is very damaging to the body of Christ. I want you to hear me on this. This is probably more important than what I just preached on. Because John, meticulously and lovingly through 1 John, just like Paul has done through 1 Corinthians, is trying to help them understand the definition and the meaning and the application a biblical Christian fellowship. And so we read in verse 3, this loving gathering, he says, That which we have seen and heard. Now he's saying the same thing again. That which we've seen and heard, declaring unity. Now I'm going to tell you this. Wouldn't you have loved to have been around the Lord Jesus Christ back in those days? I mean, you'd feel so loved, amen? You, felt, you would feel so accepted. You would feel so bad when you messed up in, in, behind him or in front of him. Amen? You know? I mean, just to be around Jesus, there just had to been such a comfort, such a wonderfulness being around Jesus. And Paul, John is writing here and he says, That which we've seen and heard declare we unto you. He says, Now I'm not finished telling you about things I know. He says, I've told you about Jesus. I'm going to tell you more what it's like to be around Jesus. And I'm going to tell you more about what he told me and what, what I learned. But he said, but, but, but now he shifts, he shifts gears again. He says that ye also may have fellowship with us. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, John's fellowship for us, this congregation that he loved, this congregation that he nurtured in the Word of God, this congregation that he poured his life into and he preached the Word of God to. Listen, there was a rift in the fellowship between those brethren and him because of false teachers that came in and seduced them and twisted their minds and poisoned their minds. They said, John is an old man. John is ineffective. John can't help you. John can't preach the gospel anymore. He's telling you, he's telling you lies about Jesus Christ. And so John says, now, I gotta, I gotta, he, now he's being very patient and loving with them. And he said, that which we've seen and heard, declare we unto him. He says, I'm telling you firsthand experience. I'm telling you what Jesus Christ is all about. He says, don't listen to those Gnostics which are telling you from false doctrines that came out of the pits of hell. He says, don't believe those men. They have no substantiation or nothing to validate what they're saying. And he says, everything I'm telling you I can validate because it came from first-hand experience of receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Now let me tell you, there's no greater testimony you can give than the testimony of Jesus Christ having saved you from your sins. We don't, we don't magnify the old life, and we don't magnify our sinful life. Listen, we ought to spend less time talking about how sinful we are and spend more time in talking about what Jesus Christ has done for us. Amen? What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I like Unshackled, but I'll tell you one of the problems I have with Unshackled. They spend 25 minutes telling you about how this guy was a drunkard and how he's on skid row and all these problems that this guy had. He had and he had drug and all. And I understand you have to talk about that in only five minutes about getting saved. Let me tell you, you ought to spend five minutes talking about how bad you are and 25 minutes about how great Jesus Christ is. Because if you can't talk about how great Jesus Christ is, you haven't experienced him. You cannot say that which we've seen and that which we've heard. But John has been hurt. There's been a rift in the fellowship, and he's, there's been a rift in their own fellowship. They didn't trust each other. There's a spirit of suspicion among the brethren there. And so he says, that which we've seen and heard declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And notice this. And truly, now he's going he's to help us to find fellowship here. And truly, now notice he didn't say my fellowship. 
our fellowship, our koinonia, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, John is basically summarizing what I'm going to give you here. And he talks a little bit more in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 about a loving gathering. Now, fellowship is another key word that's found in 1 John. In this chapter alone, the word fellowship, corporate fellowship, and personal fellowship is mentioned with God is mentioned four times in this first chapter. Now, I'm telling you this right now. If we're not right with each other, we're not right with God. Amen? And if we're not right with God, it's hard for us to be right with each other. I mean, it just works the same. Amen? I mean, it's just, that's Bible. That's doctrine there, okay? John was a member of the church of Jerusalem. If you go to Acts chapter 2, verse 41, to verse 47, you can't help but read in those early days of the church at Acts. That was a loving, a loving, united church body. And their revivals that they had, those revivals they had, weren't just about the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. We like to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. But the power of the Holy Spirit must work in you and through you. And you find that these believers, as we get to chapter 4, that they, they found that they're, they're, just, they're going through some challenges there because they've been censured by the, by, by the Sanhedrin, and God gives them a revival of what they had in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. You find things that they had those agape love feasts and they came and shared meals together and they had fellowship around the table and their fellowship around the table was talking about what God had done for them. And listen, God was breaking down barriers back in those days. I mean, women were no longer despised upon. Women were elevated to the status of being, being godly people and, and you, you'll notice that, that, that the poor could mingle with the rich and the rich mingle with the poor. I mean, all the barriers that were in their society, all the caste systems they had were all cast down. They were all broken down because Jesus Christ breaks down the barrier between all of these things. And in that loving church gathering, John had first-hand experience what a loving church fellowship should be all about. Now, Lord willing, in a couple weeks or sooner, as churches start to reassemble officially, we're going to get out a major social media campaign to help people who need a church to understand that we are working fervently, and I need your help with this. To be a model, a church model for safe assembly. Because, you know, there's a lot of people that are older in age and health vulnerable that are very scared to death about coming out. The only reason why they go out is to gas up their car and to buy their groceries, and that's it. They don't want to get their hair done. Ladies don't want to get their hair done. Men don't want to get their hair cut. They're afraid to go to the doctor's offices. They're definitely afraid of coming to church. I've talked to many of our older members in our church, and many of them are very, very afraid about coming back to church. I understand that. And what we want to put out for people to understand, we're a model for safe assembly. But can I tell you this from the bottom of my heart? I don't want to just be a model for safe assembly. I want to be a model of a loving church fellowship as well too. Amen? 
I want people to know the moment they walk in, they sense the love of Jesus Christ working in their hearts. I want people to know this is, this is a church where someone will give the shirt off their back. This is a church where if they've got a need, we're going to take them a special offering to help them. I want them to know this is a church that loves them and cares for them. And when Thanksgiving comes and Christmas comes, that if they have a need, we'll prepare a meal and help them with the meal or whatever it may be, that they're going to know that we're going to take up an offering, do something to help them. I just want you to understand today that a loving church fellowship cares for one another. It cares if one suffers, all suffer. We realize that we have grace in our hearts towards one another and give a, give a period for tip people to grow in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and we bear all things and endure all things and, and, and that we, we love no iniquity and we rejoice in the truth the Bible says there. So John says here, yes, I know real fellowship and I want you to know what real fellowship is. Number one, he, he talks about the basis of fellowship. We've got to move very quickly. Now the word, the word for, for fellowship is a sweet, wonderful word in the New Testament. It's a Greek word koinonia, which some groups are so Love that word so much they named their fellowships after it, but I think somehow they do a disservice to it. That's just my subjective opinion about that. It's a beautiful word which speaks about communion. It is a word that expresses communication. Paul uses that in describing faith promise giving in our offerings. He calls it communicating with one another. He uses that in Galatians chapter 6 and Philippians chapter 4. It's talking about association. It's talking about participation. The word koinonia is where all the barriers are broken down and we can fellowship together. We fellowship around. Now, what do we fellowship under? Look at verse 3 again. He said, truly our fellowship with God, and God the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, number one, the basis for our fellowship is the doctrine of the Word of God. Can't two walk together except they be agreed. Now, I want to understand something, that the basis for our fellowship is the doctrine of the Word of God. How, what we believe should determine how we behave. Now, the basis for fellowship is not based on, listen to this, it's not based on cliques, common occupations, favorite ice creams, amen? Although that helps a little bit there, Amen? Whether you like sushi or don't like sushi, and if you don't like sushi, get off my plate, amen, you know. It's not about ethnicity or secular models of acceptance. Fellowship is not I like you and you like, or you like me. No, that's not fellowship. That's not fellowship. The basis for fellowship, and truly our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It's doctrine. You read Ephesians chapter 4, and he mentions that there's one Lord... One church, one baptism. This Christian fellowship is centered on the common salvation we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, our doctrinal beliefs, and our local New Testament church. Listen, there ought to be no greater place you want to come to than the local church. There's no better place that you have your friendships than the local New Testament church. And you say, well, I can't find my friends. Well, he that, he that will have friends must show himself friendly. Amen. There's a basis. There's a bond. Look at verse 3. John, John is he's burdened that there's a bonding of the believers. You all know Psalms 133 verse 1. Talks about the fellowship of believers there. The bond is a body of believers. This is a body of believers bonded by Christ-like love for one another. It's a bond that is tightly woven in the ministry of prayer. 
It is a bond that exalts our Lord under the ministry of God's word. Listen, all of God's people should be on the same page when we come to church that we're bonded in fellowship by the preaching of God's word. Listen, the fact that you're under preaching tonight is saying I love God's word, but it ought to be saying more than just you love God's word. It ought to be saying I love Jesus Christ and I love God the Father and I love the word of God and I love the church and I love being around God's people. I just love to be around God's people at the local New Testament church. Now, I have a lot of church friends, and I've preached in several, I've been, I've been in a lot of churches there. I've preached in churches across this, across this great, 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 uh, this great, great place of America. I've been in foreign country places, but I'm going to tell you what, there's nothing like being in Heritage Baptist Church, my own church. I tell you what, we've got our faults and we've got our issues, but there's no people I'd rather be with. There's no people I'd rather fellowship with. There's no people I'd rather serve and do more for than the people of Heritage Baptist Church, because this is my fellowship. This is my local New Testament church, and you ought to have a passion, desire to say, this is my church, and this is my place. I'll take the shirt off my back and the Choose off my feet to do anything I can as, as the bond for fellowship here at this church. Now, when people are not exalting our Lord Jesus Christ, there's a breach in the fellowship. When Jesus Christ is not getting the glory, there's a breach in the fellowship. When the ministry itself that we're part of and we're sub-ministries of one big ministry... We're not sub-churches of one big church. There's no such thing. that We don't have different churches. This is one church here we have. Amen. But I'm going to tell you this. Ministries can take a life of their own because of preferences. Or this fear of favoritism. Or lack of favoritism. That's not how we operate. That's why the church had problems in Ephesians, uh, Acts chapter 6 there, that the, the Hebrew believers and the Grecian believers, the Hebrew Grecians, they were saying, well, you know, you're neglecting our, our widows. They're not being served at the time of ministration. Now, my, my take on that, I, I believe that there was a problem that people were being underserved. I, don't, I, don't, I think that was true. But I think they were over-exaggerating the problem because, you know what, the apostles didn't argue with them. The apostles said, okay, well, if that's the case, the problem is because we're understaffed. That's what the problem is. He said, look, you out of men, you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Spiritual criteria, not fleshly criteria, Amen. We don't go looking LinkedIn to see what the, what the person's criteria is about. We look at their internal life. We find out from their internal life and from outside references, is this person the real deal? Are they, a light in, are they light and darkness outside there? Do they have a good report among men outside? And man, when they chose those seven men, the church took off again and started to grow. They got things corrected. But no ministry should have a life of its own and goes off and does its own thing. And we don't have this here, but I'm going to use example. I'm not picking anybody here, but just let's take our children's ministry. Our children's ministry is probably one of the largest number of workers in all the ministries of our church, and even despite the fact that we can't really meet and do all the things we can, but it takes a lot of manpower to, to manage and oversee the children. Now, what would happen if our children's ministry got over here, and Brother Daniel got over here, and Brother Kwan got over here, and Brother Jacob got over here, and, and all these other workers got over here, they're all good people? And they kind of segregate themselves off from the rest of the church, and they're not doing that, so don't get any ideas that they're doing this. But let's say they got start doing that, and they start having their own fellowship and things, and then the pastor doesn't know anything about it, and the church doesn't know anything about it, and they're just doing their own thing. They're just floating along, having their little barbecue times, their little sushi times, things like that, and they're, they're thinking they're having fellowship. They're, they're, they've segregated themselves from the rest, of the rest of the church. Let me tell you, there's a problem with that. I said there's a problem with that. Because now you're creating, a, you're taking a sub-ministry of, a, of the bigger ministry and you're trying to create a life of your own and say, we don't, now that doesn't mean they can't have fellowship with one another and all that kind of stuff. And that doesn't mean they're not going to be closer to each other than they are with the rest of the church. But when we divorce ourselves from everybody else, you know what we're saying? We don't need everybody else. And that's not how the church works. 
I need you and you need me. That's how the work, the work of God goes on. Listen, the bond of fellowship is love that provokes, it's, it's where we provoke one another to love and to good works. That's Hebrews 10, 24, 25. It's a bond that cares and builds up and not attacks and tears down. There's a basis for fellowship, the bond of fellowship, but there's the blessing of fellowship. Amen? And one of those blessings is eating together. Amen? That ain't going to happen for a while. Amen? That's a, that's a, that's a discouragement there. We're all ready. We've got the kitchens. We've got, we got the equipment. Uh, we've got the canopies now for outdoor eating, but it's a little while before we get there. But let me just say this. The blessings, the loving gathering. You know how to be? You just walk in church. You don't have to say a word. Just feel like, Brother Rob, you just feel like, man, I just feel loved here. Amen? I feel like God's love is here. But what are the blessings? Well, you know, there's peace. There's peace. There's power in prayer. Hey, you know why? There needs to be, our basis is in the word of God and our bonding is, we bond with each other. You know why? One of the blessings is, is, you know, it's a congregation. Hey, listen to me now. Now, we've been blessed of God. 21 years. Brother Dave, you know this. We have not had any one major crisis in this church. I mean, I'm talking about serious crisis. We've come close. But if we have a situation where there's going to be another building program, by the way, I pray that there will be another building program in the near future. And I pray there'll be more growth, and I'm praying for some things that I'll share in another, another message sometime here. But I'm going to say this to you. Listen. One of the blessings of a fellowship of believers in a church that's bonded together is the power of prayer. Listen, listen, we've got to get together right now because we've got to pray for this election. And we've got to pray for righteousness to exalt this nation. And we've got to pray for a return to God. We've got to pray that there's enough light to put some hose in the darkness in this nation. And I'm just going to put it out there. We need to pray that God's going to put an end to this socialistic philosophy that's out there that's trying to destroy our nation right now. And if you're some kind of knucklehead, I'm sorry to say that, that you believe that we ought to have higher taxation and we need to have a, we need to have a, we need to have a weaker military and you think that same-sex marriages are okay and it's okay to send money to Planned Parenthood and support abortion, I'm going to tell you right now, you are not on a biblical platform. And if you think it's like the philosophy that's out there right now is being pushed by several congressmen right now that are saying that we need to take everything, just redistribute it, give it away, and increase the taxation in our country, I'm going to tell you what right now, if we don't do something about it, a lot more people are going to leave the state of California, a lot more people are going to go to states a little bit more friendly to them, and a lot more people are just going to become anti-Christ and anti-gospel. Think, Listen, we've got to be more fervent than ever before. If we want to stop the tide of socialism, we stop this tide of socialism by the hard preaching of the Word of God. It's a blessing of the power of prayer. We need to pray for God to answer prayer and do some things in this nation. There's the evidence of real discipleship. There's the winning of souls to Christ. There's extraordinary giving and offering for the work of God. There's glory to God. I'm just saying today, when we look at this loving gathering, there's the, there's the basis, there's the bond, but thank God there's the blessing. Amen. Finally tonight, John said there that you may have fellowship with us. He said, now, man, I know what it's all about. I, I was in a church that was a model for good fellowship. John said, I've seen, I've heard, and I've looked upon, and my hands have handled. Yes, I know the living God. He said, that which I've seen and heard, declare we unto you and bear witness to you. He says, yes, I know the lively gospel. He said, I want you to have fellowship with me because truly our fellowship is with the Son with the Father. And he says, yes, I know what a loving gathering is all about. And I want you to be part of a loving gathering. But as we close, would you look at verse 4? He says, yes, I know what a lasting gladness is all about. 
We need to quickly add. He says, and these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. My wife knows me after 38 years of marriage. After every meal, she asks this question. Question number one, was it good? It was excellent. Question number two, more important, are you full? What do I say 50% of the time? I'm still hungry. <laughs> it's not that there's not enough food. I'm just, I got a high metabolism. And by the way, I love to eat. Amen. If you don't love to eat, God help you. Amen. God help you. You got one foot in the grave and I don't know where the other foot's at, but man, I love to eat. Amen. So he's talking to me yesterday. He said, Pastor, we looked at a picture. You lost a little bit of weight. Yes, I know I've lost about 15 to 18 pounds here. And I, need, I, and I want to try to get, my, try to get my, my weight down because a little bit there because I've had this cholesterol problem for several years. It's right at the border, and I don't want to take statin medication. I just, I just don't want to take it. I mean, the doctor's been trying to get me on statin medication for years, and it's right at the border there. It's my LDL is more elevated than I want it to be. And so I said, I'm working really hard to try to get my LDL level down because next 30 days I'm going to take a blood test here. So I've been working for one year on this. They said, what are you going to do if you find out your LDL didn't go down? I said, I'm going to go back to eating again. Forget this diet, amen? I'm just going to go back to eating again and gain my weight back, amen? I'm not going to suffer, amen? I'm going to heaven one way or the other, amen? I'm not doing it because I want to live 10 more years. I'm doing it because I don't want to take sad medication, amen? I love to eat. John said this. These things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Now, how many get it? These were unhappy Christians, amen? I mean, they didn't suck on one lemon, man. You could tell that some of them were eating on a lemon tree, amen? They weren't filled with joy. Now, one of the tragedies of Christian life is when we are empty of God's joy. Joy is a lasting gladness. If you study the word joy, it is lasting it is filling. It needs to get replenished. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. Sorrow endureth for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Now let me give you some things real quickly about joy. Jesus Christ himself set the standard. He said, notice this, John 15, 11, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, that your joy might be full. Now Jesus himself said, I want your joy to be full. Now John seized upon that, and later, years later, he writes 1 John 1, 4, he says, I want you to know that your joy may be full. Because you know, Jesus looked around 12 miserable apostles that were not happy up in that upper room, right? Right? They weren't happy. Oh, let me stand on your right. Let me sit on your right. Let me sit on your left. You know, they're arguing with each other. It's like a deacon's meeting. You know? Man, they were not happy. And these believers down in Ephesus, they were not happy. Now, let me give you some thoughts. We've got to close. Listen to this, and you write this down. Now, fullness of joy is the joy of Jesus abiding, but, but how do you get it? How do you get your joy filled? I've, I've heard a lot of preachers preach about, about this and your joy tank being empty and you need to get it replaced. But they never tell you how to get your joy tank filled. I'm going to tell you tonight, all right? Number one, look at Jeremiah 15, 16. Fullness of joy is in a life filled with God's Word. Fullness of joy is in a life filled with God's word. Listen to Jeremiah 15, 16. Thy words were found. Now that means you've got to search. It means you've got to go on a treasure hunt. Thy words were found, and I didn't eat them. That means you've got to sit down, 
Get ready for a meal. Did you ever read this and realize that getting something from the Word of God is not like going to In-N-Out? You've got to sit down and have a meal. If you're having In-N-Out Christianity, it's more out than it's in. And thy word was unto me, listen to this, the joy and rejoicing of my heart. You know what he's saying there? Thy words were found and I did eat them and they were the joy. Listen, I'll tell you why. There are numbers of Christians around the world that don't have the joy of Jesus Christ in them because they've not spent any time in the word of God. You're not eating the word of God. You're still a baby Christian. Listen to this, Psalms 32.1. Fullness of joy is in the forgiveness of our sins. How many are you thankful you're forgiven of your sins? Amen. Listen to what he said here, Psalm 32.1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Listen to this, John 16.24. You'll love this. Fullness of joy is found in answered prayer. Hitherto you've asked nothing in my name. Asking you shall receive. Listen to this. That your joy may be full. Who said that? Jesus. You know why we're miserable people? We're not seeing answered prayer. You know why we're not answered prayer? You have not because you ask not. That's why. You have not because you have to. If you're praying in generalities, and I'm, I'm going to get to this because we're getting a series on this next year. You, if you're praying in generalities, you're never going to see prayers answered. Prayers must be specific. Pray, prayers must get right to the heart of the matter. Look at Psalm 1611. Fullness of joy is being in the presence of God. I spoke about that this morning. This is what David said. Thou wilt show me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. Hey, listen. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. God is saying there, I'll give you my presence. But notice what he says in Psalm 16, 11. He says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. Hey, yes, have you had those times, and I know you have, have you had those times when you've gotten in your face before God, an extended season of time of having a special devotion time in the Word of God in prayer, and God's worked your life, and you feel like Moses did when he was on top of the mountain, you came down, and you felt like, man, God met with me, and then the next five days came and you lost it. He says, my presence is the fullness of joy. Fullness of joy is in the salvation of lost sinners. Listen to Psalms 126, 5 and 6. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. And he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seeds, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. By the way, fullness of joy is loving Jesus. Amen? First John 1, 8. Whom having not seen you love. And whom though now you see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's good joy right there. What is the joy of serving our Lord and serving others? John 13, 17. Listen, if you know these things, happier ye if you do them. He's talking about just before this, washing the disciples' feet. Hey, listen to this and I'm done. Fullness of joy is finishing our course well. Did you hear what I said? Fullness of joy is finishing our course well. I get really, really a little bit concerned for preachers that tell me, pray I finish well. And my first question is, what's going on in your life that you are anxious about that? This is what Paul said. But none of these things move me. Now, I'm going to tell you tonight, COVID's not going to move me. County of Alameda, whatever they decide is not going to move me. Whatever happens in the election is not going to move me. He says, none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear to myself. Now, there's the secret right there. 
Neither count on my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. Finish with joy. John is saying here, these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. My question for you as we end tonight, how full is your joy? What's your joy tank look like? Does it need to be opened up and scum needs to be cleaned out before you can refill it? Are you, is your, your joy tank filled with everything other than the winning of souls and finishing your course well and other than loving Jesus and going after the word of God and singing after the prayer? I'm just saying tonight, if you don't have the joy of the Lord, if you're a miserable person in your life and you're struggling in your life, it might be because you've depleted yourself and you've filled your, you've substituted the wrong things and you, what you need to do is get the right things inside you so that your joy may be full. You know what John was saying? He wrote this chapter, he wrote this section as a happy Christian. He wrote this as a joyful Christian. He didn't write this as somebody talking theory or hypothesis. He says, I want you to know, these things write unto you that your joy may be full. He says, listen, I've got it in my life. He says, I've been thrown in the cauldron of boiling oil. And I've been thrown, I've been exiled on the island of Patmos. And I've had all my best friends killed. I've had my friends, they've been speared and they've been, they've been beheaded. And they've been, they've been crucified. And they've gone through all that. And I've seen our church go through ups and downs. And I know we've got false doctrine problems right now in this church. But we're going to deal with it. But he says, I'm going to tell you. None of those things move me because I have the fullness of joy in Jesus Christ. And while I'm dealing with you, he says, I want you to have that same fullness of joy in your life as well there too. Yes, I know. Yes, I know a living God. Yes, I know a lively gospel. Yes, I know a lovely gathering. Yes, I know a lasting gladness. Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? Have you seen? Have you heard? Have you handled? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? If you died today, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? You cannot have joy until you get Jesus. Call on the Lord tonight. Repent of your sins and say, Lord, I need you tonight to be my Savior.